The title of this evening's talk is The Pure and Beautiful Mind. The Benefits of Concentration and Insight. And I'd like to begin uh, reading uh, William Butler Yeats' uh, Celtic Twilight. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. So with this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome, beautiful states or factors of mind, chetasikas in Pali, that are associated with the development and the fruits of concentration, and also with the developing, development and the deepening and the fruits of vipassana, or insight practice, all of which includes a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness, the chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness, this quality of mind that needs to accompany us through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analyses of these mind states or factors of mind are described in the Abhidhamma Pitaka or the basket, the Abhidhamma basket. So we'll do just a, a brief review of what this Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teachings. The first basket, or the first collection, uh, is the Book of Discipline, containing all of the rules of conduct for the monks and the nuns, and all of the guidelines regarding governing living in a monastic community, a monastic sangha. The second collection, or basket, brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas uh, that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. The third collection, or basket, is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has uh, a distinctly different um, character, so to say, or quality than the other two. Whereas it's not a record of discourses and discussions occurring in real life 
settings, which both of the other two baskets are very much rooted in. But rather the Abhidhamma is a clear and detailed and refined disclosure of the mind and mental processes that combine psychology, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective into a very unique and really uh, uh, quite remarkable synthesis and is experiential, meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it can be helpful and inspiring at some point along the way of our practice to actually hear in at least some detail about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in practice. To understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my practice, I've found this information to actually be quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, this understanding, can help to counter the fears and uh, other averse uh, reactions that may come up in relationship to some practice experience along with um, made-up and sometimes fanciful stories and analyses, the misperceptions and um, misunderstandings that come, can come up in relationship to practice, and the attachments, the clinging that can come up in practice in relationship to what might be unusual or unfamiliar um, experiences, or even in relationship to our more familiar experiences. Some of which one of my Burmese teachers, Saida Upandita, calls the Dhamma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma speaks about 35 wholesome or beautiful mental factors or mental states. And some of them are both wholesome and beautiful. Some of them are just wholesome. Some of them are just beautiful. These uh, wholesome and or beautiful associated uh, mental factors or mental states that are associated with the development phase of concentration and the manifestation of jhana and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and wisdom continue to unfold and to blossom. Twenty-nine of these wholesome and beautiful states or factors um, are universals. They're universally developed through our practice. Six of them are considered to be um, occasionals and are wholesome uh, uh, and beautiful only if they are accompanied by wholesome consciousness. And you'll understand 
more. This will become clearer uh, to you as we go along exploring these uh, various uh, mental factors. The first five factors are active, wholesome mental factors that are part of both both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration. With the first two also being necessary and active components throughout our practice of insight, throughout our vipassana practice. The last three of these five factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during very specific stages of the development of, and manifestation of concentration and jhana. And they're also active um, during particular aspects of vipassana practice. So these first five, these first five um, wholesome factors of mind, which actually each one of you in this retreat are experiencing to varying degrees during this retreat. And I'll list them, and then we'll explore them a little bit. The first is vitaka, the initial application as it's translated, usually translated, and I'll be explaining them more as we go along. The second is vichara, which is the sustained application of the attention. The third is piti in Pali, zest or joy, and we'll look at that more deeply. The fourth is sukha, which, brief translation, is happiness. And the fifth is ikagata, which is one-pointedness. The first two, uh, vitaka and vichara, when they're accompanied, uh, uh, accompanying a wholesome mind consciousness, uh, these two mental factors are considered wholesome factors of mind. But they're called occasionals because if they're not uh, uh, accompanying a wholesome mind consciousness, then they're not wholesome we can apply our attention in unwholesome ways and we can sustain our attention in unwholesome ways as well. So the first factor of mind, which all of you are experiencing to varying degrees, vitaka translated, as I've already mentioned, uh, as initial application, meaning it's the application of the mind to the object. And Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. And in our case here, the sensations of the in and out breath at the Anapana spot. The function of Vitaka is to strike at the object, as the very graphic description of it is in the Abhidhamma. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object. 
And we sometimes talk about it as it's like training a puppy. Our mind is kind of like a little puppy. (laughs) So we keep leading it towards and training it to, (laughs) towards. Vitaka has the special task and fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, sleepiness and lethargy. And in jhana, vitaka is the experience of the mind absorbing into the object, uh, into the nimitta and then um, into the light of jhana itself. Vitaka is very uh, closely connected, very closely associated with intention, right intention or wholesome intention, which is one of the uh, eightfold noble path. So that's the first one, Vitaka. The second is Vichara, second wholesome factor of mind. or translated, that word translated as sustained application. And vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure, or as the Abhidhamma describes it, the stroking of the object. In the sense of staying with it, and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind on the object. And in our case here, it's the breath sensation, sensations at the Anapana spot. Vichara temporarily totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt. And the temporary total uh, inhibiting of this hindrance of doubt happens uh, in a very deep uh, concentration uh, in jhana. Along the way, it's um, inhibited to varying degrees. And it weakens doubt overall throughout one's ongoing concentration practice and also in relationship to insight practice. There are some really wonderful metaphors, uh, similes in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma, uh, highlighting the differences between vitaka and vichara. So I'd like to share just a few of these. Vitaka, uh, like a bird spreading out its wings to fly, the initial application. Vichara, like a bird gliding through the air with outstretched wings the sustained application. Vitaka, like a bee diving towards the flower, so this initial application. And vichara, like a bee buzzing above the flower, the sustained application. So the third factor of mind, it's also an occasional, called an occasional, which in Pali is PT, not the word occasional, but the factor is PT, uh, which is usually translated as zest or joy. Um, 
And it's an occasional because uh, uh, it is really um, wholesome only if it's if it manifests without any identification and without any attachment. The mental characteristic of PT. Uh, it's, it's actually the unoccasional is in terms of wholesome and beautiful if it uh, manifests without any attachment and identification. And the mental characteristic uh, of p- characteristics of PT can be quite endearing. Uh, and they can be explained as delight, um, uh, a positive and pleasurable interest in the object. The function of PT is to refresh the mind and the body. And it pervades the mind and the body in its initial stages with sometimes what feels like thrills, sometimes described as rapture. Though really this word doesn't uh, fully cover all of its nuances. It often manifests as mind and uh, as a mind and body quality of gladness, joy, um, kind of a merriment sometimes, elation, exaltation, exhilaration, um, satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries, there are five grades, as it's called, of piti that are distinguished and they can arise when when vitaka and when vichara are both in place and perking along in our practice. And I'm sure uh, that some of these will be very recognizable for some of you ex- as exper- uh, experiences that have occurred in your practice uh, to varying degrees. So the first of these is called minor joy, minor zest, and... Uh, it says it's able, it's said, and maybe some of you have experienced this, able to raise the hairs on the body. <laughs> the second one is called momentary joy or momentary zest. And it's like small flashes of lightning in the mind. Familiar to some of you, I know. The third is called showering joy or showering zest. And it breaks over the body again and again and again like waves on the seashore, kind of orgasmic-like. The fourth is called uplifting zest or uplifting joy. And that can cause the body to feel as though it's lifting up or levitating, (laughs) which uh, I've heard that actually happens for some yogis. There's a story that Sayadavivakananda tells um, about a a monk at a particular monastery in um, Burma when he was living there. And um, uh, uh, this monk would do his sitting practice, his meditation practice, on his bed in his room. And he, he would rise up and then fall over, over and over and over again, as the story goes. And so he he let the other monks know about this, and they were really wanted to see it. So he invited them 
the story goes that he invited them all to come and watch uh, from the window, from the outside, uh, to come and watch the show, which uh, the story goes they did, and he performed properly. (laughs) (laughs) The um, fifth uh, type or... uh, uh, grade, we could say, of, of PT is uh, called pervading joy or pervading zest. And it pervades, it floods the whole mind and body with a very refreshing, bright elation. And the Abhidhamma describes it as like a flood that fills a cavern. As a factor of mind, a sustained PT, particularly PT that's experienced much more as a mind state uh, than as a bodily experience, has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused and deeply absorbed attention on the object, as happens with the manifestation of jhana, PT temporarily, completely inhibits ill will. And at this point, PT is actually only a mind state. It's not in the body at all. It's not being experienced at all as a bodily experience. So the next factor is also an occasional (laughs) because it is manifests as wholesome and beautiful only if it is not accompanied by any identification, self-identification or attachment. And this is sukha in Pali, which uh, the simple translation of that is happiness. And this mental factor is a a pleasant mental feeling, very pleasant mental feeling. It's born out of of mind contact with the object, with breath initially, and then at some point, possibly, if one moves into jhana, the object becomes the jhana. It's a very sweet, blissful mental feeling, and it's born out of detachment from all sensual pleasure. And so it's explained as kind of, it's explained as an unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it can be very gratifying, engendering a very deep sense of gratification And consequently, it's very easy to get attached to. So mindfulness needs to remain very strong and very clear in, in this process. In the jhana, it's, uh, extremely sweet and, uh, gratifying. And at one point I said, This is what everybody wants. It's dangerous. (laughs) 
because you want it so bad. And then you taste it, and then you want it even more. You can get attached very quickly and very easily. It counters and weakens the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And although PT and Sukha are they're closely connected, they're not the same. So I'd like to um, read you uh, some uh, uh, discussion about this from the commentaries to the Abhidhamma. First about PT and then about Sukha. PT, joy, sometimes called rapture, is like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. He or she sees a man and asks, Where is water? The other says, Soon there's a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you will get some water. Upon hearing this, the traveler is glad, joyful and delighted, and then more glad and delighted when he or she sees leaves on the ground and then people with wet clothes and hair and hears the sound of wildfowl and then sees the dense green forest like a net of jewels growing by the edge of the lake, sees the clear transparent water and water lilies growing in the lake, and then is more and more and more joyful, glad, and delighted. So that's P.T. from the Abhidhamma commentaries. And the next is a sukha. Sukha, ease, sweet happiness, is like the travel, traveler entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. The commentary describes it like this. He or she descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns himself or herself with lotus flowers, then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth and lays down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so gently and says, Oh, bless. Oh, bless. (laughs) With the sense of ease and sweet happiness grown strong, enjoying the taste of the object, as it said in the commentary. I just love these descriptions. (laughs) graphic (laughs) so piti joy rapture and sukha the sweet bliss of happiness are are closely connected but they're not the same piti gains prominence over sukha and actually provides a causal foundation for sukha to arise So the next of these five wholesome mental factors is um, ikagata, one-pointedness. And ikagata is a universal mental factor. It's not an occasional. The Pali term literally means one point, a one-pointed state. 
And this mental factor is the primary component, is the essence of concentration, the essence of samatha. Be it sustained concentration and potentially absorbed concentration or a momentary focus of of attention as in vipassana practice, as in uh, insight practice. One-pointedness, ikagata, in the fourth jhana temporarily completely inhibits sensual desire and weakens it overall. Which is actually, maybe news to some of you or maybe not, is actually a necessary condition for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. The function of ikagata is that one is able to very closely contemplate the object. Though it absolutely cannot perform this function on its own, it requires the joint or the cooperative action of the other four factors that we've uh, just been exploring, each performing its own function, um, such as avitaka applying the attention, and all of the associated states on the object, vichara sustaining the attention along with all of the other associated mental states in relationship to the object, and piti bringing delight in the object, sukha experiencing a sweet happiness in relationship to the object. So these are the first five uh, factors of mind that are associated with the development of concentration and jhana and are also, as I mentioned, uh, aspects of uh, insight practice, vipassana practice at different points. So now I'd like to go on and look at the other factors of mind in a somewhat more uh, more briefly than what we've just uh, looked at with these five. Uh, but the other factors of mind that are associated with uh, concentration and also with insight practice. And again, some of these, most of these, will be familiar to you in various ways from your own experience. The next is uh, decision or resolve, and in Pali, it's adimoka. And it literally means uh, the releasing of the mind onto the object. And so it's rendered as a decision or resolution to make a resolve. And it is an occasional. And it's wholesome as long as it's associated with a wholesome consciousness. Because, of course, we can make a decision and resolve and make a resolve in relationship to very unwholesome aspects of life. So it is um, a wholesome mind state if it's associated with wholesome consciousness. It has the characteristic of of conviction and uh, it has the function of not groping around. It manifests as decisiveness. Its nearest and most immediate uh, cause 
is that it needs something to be convinced about. So, for instance, in our case, at times, possibly making a resolve to give one's complete attention to the breath, to the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath at the Anapanaspada. And it's been compared to uh, a stone pillar owing uh, to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. The next uh, occasional wholesome mind state, and again, it's associated, uh, it, it is a wholesome mind state if it's associated with a wholesome activity in practice, is energy. And in Pali, the word is virya. It's the state or action of one who is vigorous. And its characteristic is exertion. And supporting or mobilizing or marshalling, as it's called in the Abhidhamma. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with. And it manifests as non-collapsing. The closest cause for this energy to manifest is a sense of urgency, a sense of spiritual urgency. Or engaging in an experience that arouses energy, which actually could be as simple as taking a refreshing walk, taking a brisk walk, maybe doing... 15-20 minutes of mindful yoga or tai chi or qigong or some mindful exercise or anything really that stirs and inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action, meaning in this case towards energetic practice. So the next wholesome factor of mind is wholesome desire. And the Pali word for this is chanda. It means the desire to act, the desire to perform an action or to achieve achieve a result, or to achieve a result. And this, this kind of desire, of course, needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire, unwholesome desire stems from greed and lust. Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. It can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal as in relationship to our practice. And it's spoken of metaphorically and one of my favorite uh, metaphors. It's spoken of metaphorically as stretching forth the mind's hand toward the object. So that's chanda, wholesome desire. And we'll go on, and it's a long list. (laughs) I had mentioned at the beginning there were 35 of these. (laughs) We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the rest of them. Um,
many of them are universal and beautiful factors or states of mind. And uh, some of which, actually, as we go through the list, we've already talked about, we've already explored in this retreat. And others, uh, we will explore, uh, some of them anyways, as the retreat continues on. So the next one is faith. And we've, we've explored that some, so I'm not going to speak about it this evening. Mindfulness, which I mention many times, every day. <laughs> and I hope you mention it to yourself many times every day as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next two are, uh, the, the, the Pali words are hiri and otapa. Hiri is translated as moral shame, and otapa is translated as moral dread. Sometimes Westerners have a, a lot of aversion to, the, to these translations, this particular moral shame and moral dread. But these are really two very beautiful mental factors, hiri otapa. They're considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection of the family, the community, the world, and in relationship to all of our relationships. And I will talk a little bit more about them at the end of this talk when, I, when they're incorporated into another aspect of, of these factors. So the next is non-greed. The next one is non-hatred. Some of these are in the negative. They, they, the non-greed and non-hatred. The next is neutrality of mind, neutrality of heart which is associated with equanimity. Tranquility of mind, tranquility of heart, which tranquility is beyond just calm. It's extensive calmness in this case, tranquility. Tranquility of consciousness. The next is lightness of mind, lightness of heart. So brightness, lightness the opposite of heaviness, the opposite of the sinking of the mind, the sinking of the heart, and the sinking of consciousness. So the next one is the lightness of consciousness. Next is malleability of mind and heart. So non-rigidity, but really malleable heart, a malleable mind, and malleability of consciousness. Next is the wieldiness of these are all, by the way, developing as we practice, ongoing developing with our uh, samatha practice. Wieldiness of mind, wieldiness of heart, meaning the ability to go where it needs to go. That's pretty amazing, actually, that we're developing that. <laughs> the wieldiness of consciousness. And the proficiency of the mind, the proficiency of the mind-heart, heart-mind. Clarity and quickness is what this means. Proficiency of consciousness. Honesty or uprightness of mind and heart. And the honesty or uprightness of consciousness. The next four of these um, beautiful and wholesome uh, qualities or states or uh, factors of mind 
are the four Brahma Viharas. So metta, unconditional loving kindness, unconditional acceptance, friendship, compassion, karuna, appreciative joy or empathetic joy, mudita, and the fourth is upekka, equanimity. And those are all perking along as we're practicing. Some of you are specifically practicing metta as well as part of your practice. And, but it happens anyways. It's, it's happening along with. All of these are. And there's three more uh, beautiful mental factors that are called abstinences. And these are three distinct mental factors that the Buddha often spoke about. And they come through, uh, they come about uh, through three different types of, um, or levels of abstinence. So I'd like to explore those, these three levels or types of abstinence. The first, the Buddha called natural abstinence meaning the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm. Classically, they're called evil deeds. Uh, when the opportunity to arises, uh, when the opportunity arises for one to engage in them due to various conditions, which happens all the time in our life. So various conditions such as maybe one's social position in those conditions, or maybe in relationship to one's age, or maybe in relationship to one's level of education, or particular circumstances in life at any given time, um, etc., etc., many different possible conditions where one might be uh, have an opportunity to engage in um, physical and mental deeds that cause harm. And one naturally abstains. One naturally abstains from these mental and physical deeds out of understanding and out of compassion. So that's natural, what the Buddha called natural abstinence. The second type of abstinence that, uh, that the Buddha spoke about, and he spoke about these a lot in, in through his teachings, is the abstinence by undertaking the precepts. So the commitment that one makes to live one's life observing the precepts. In this case, we do it, you know, every time we have a Dhamma talk, we recommit uh, to these, this approach to abstinence, this way of uh, exploring it and encouraging it. So abstinence from killing, from harmful speech, from stealing, sexual misconduct, uh, taking intoxicants, and um, just to explore these a little tiny bit, right speech, for instance, a deliberate abstinence from wrong speech. Now, in a retreat setting, it's silence, except occasionally when you have practice interviews or you need to speak for some reason. But, um, but abstinence from wrong speech, meaning false speech, Lying, slanderous speech, harsh, harsh speech, and uh, a frivolous talk. The frivolous talk one is an interesting one that once you go back into your daily life, it's an interesting one to watch. 
very interesting one. Mm -hmm. So the next one, right action. (laughs) It makes everybody giggle, yeah. Uh (laughs) Right action. So the deliberate abstinence, abstinence, excuse me, from wrong uh, or harmful, really, uh, harmful is a better word, uh, bodily action such as killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. And the next one, right, livelihood. Deliberate abstinence from what is called wrong livelihood, such as, and this is, these are the classical ways of speaking of it, but it works, I think it works for us. Dealing in poisons, that can be a broad category actually, dealing in poisons, weapons, uh, intoxicants, animals for slaughter, or people uh, to be used for unwholesome, to be used in unwholesome or harmful ways. Classically it's listed as slaves, but the list is huge in dealing with uh, people to be used in unwholesome and harmful ways. So these abstinences um, function as a kind of shrinking back from harmful deeds and manifest as the abstinence from these deeds. And the closest and most pertinent um, causes for these are the very special and beautiful qualities of faith, and of hiri otapa, of shame of engaging in harmful deeds, and of fear of wrongdoing, otapa. And lastly, the Buddha talks about um, uh, what helps with this, these abstinence is having few wants and wishes. And that's an interesting one. If we don't think we need a lot, if we don't wish for a lot of stuff, of activities, of, and we're living a, a, a quieter life, so to say, it's easily, much more easy to abstain from this whole list. And it's something you can take home and take a look at. It, it works, actually. Um, so we could say that all, um, all of these beautiful mental factors can be regarded <clears throat> as the mind or the heart's wholesome aversion to wrongdoing. And they come about as natural abstinence as, and also in, in, through the abstinence of undertaking the precepts as a, an aspect of a way of life. In retreat and and also out of retreat. Um, so the third one is a really um, profound abstinence by eradication. And this comes about through the fruits of engaging in the supramundane path of purification, the path of the purification of the heart, mind, uh, the Buddha Dhamma, the path of awakening, the path of liberation. And what is eradicated, and this is the profound part, what is eradicated eventually is the disposition toward engaging in deeds that cause harm. So eventually one isn't even inclined 
There's no disposition towards. You don't have to make a decision to not do or not say or not engage in. That's a while before that happens. <laughs> but we get tastes of it. We have tastes of it all along the way of our practice and in our life. And we, it's good to notice that because that's the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind. The first two abstinences are considered to be mundane, common, ordinary in the worldly uh, sense. While this last one is a supramundane, meaning not common in a worldly sense, but of a purified, spiritually purified nature. And the last, we've gone through 35. How do you like that? (laughs) The last of these uh, beautiful and wholesome qualities, wholesome mental factors, is the uh, factor or faculty, the wisdom faculty or the factor of wisdom. Non-delusion. The factor of understanding, of insight. Which is really the essence of our path of practice. This path of the heart, this path of the mind, path of the heart-mind. And as Carlos Castaneda said, a person of knowledge chooses a path with a heart and follows it, then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. The importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice experience as concentration and mindfulness continue to blossom is that with knowledge of what is occurring and why it's occurring, we then really have the opportunity, the possibility to see, to recognize, and know these beautiful, wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear or other aversive reactions or without misunderstandings and misperceptions, but rather with what is classically called dispassion, which is what allows the development of our practice to just keep unfolding, to keep blossoming. In their fullness, in their utmost maturity, these are the wholesome and beautiful qualities, the wholesome and beautiful capacities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. And so as we're coming up on the end of this talk, I'd like to um, offer you some practice advice 
that comes from Robert Piercig from his book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Some of you may have read this book at some point, some time ago. And this is about peace of mind. So the thing to do, this is Robert Piercig speaking or writing. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. That's why we read this book. (laughs) Maybe we didn't know it at the time. (laughs) And closing the talk this evening uh, with uh, some words from Atisha, who was an 11th century Tibetan Buddhist master. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. And let's sit quietly for just a moment, a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.